All right, good morning. I think I'm going to begin um, with a few questions, all right? It's sort of a, a congregational survey. Show of hands is all I'm looking for, all right? Um, how many of you have heard of Ronald Wayne? He's currently living in a mobile home park in Parump, Nevada. Ronald Wayne. Ronald Wayne? No? Okay. Um, how many of you have heard of Steve Jobs? Some people didn't raise their hands. Uh, okay, Ronald Wayne was one of Apple Computer's three co-founders, along with Steve Jobs and, and Steve Wozniak. Two weeks after the company was founded, uh, Wayne sold his 10% share for $800. That's a nice, che- nice check, which today would be worth $60 billion. Yeah. All right. Um, what about Mike Smith? Now, probably everybody knows a Mike Smith, right? So this Mike Smith was a talent scout for Decca Records in the 60s. Anybody heard of that Mike Smith? Okay. How about the Beatles? Some people haven't heard of the Beatles, All right, well, Mike Smith was the talent scout who auditioned the Beatles on New Year's Day in 1962 and dismissed them with a note to his label execs which read, guitar bands are on their way out. The Beatles have no future in show business. (sighs) Yes. If you Googled (laughs) missed opportunities, don't do it right now. But if you did, those two names would be at the top of your hit list, right? Um, And as colossal uh, as those uh, blunders seem to us today, I don't don't really think um, they're significant in in the grand scheme of things, or should I say maybe in the divine uh, scheme of things. I mean, Ronald Wayne... Mike Smith, what did they lose, really? Money, notoriety, that's it. What about the father who, who may be making all the right investment decisions but doesn't disciple his children, doesn't invest in them? What has he lost? Or the young woman who carefully cultivates you know, all the externals, the right clothes, the right hair, the right look, the right friends, but neglects that more arduous task of inner beauty, of patience, kindness, self-sacrifice. What has she lost? So when I think of, of, of uh, colossal, <laughs> epic missed opportunities, um, those are the kinds of scenarios that come to mind and actually people come to mind as well. Faces come to mind. Blind in pain and sorrow, um, heartbreak. This morning we have in front of us in Mark 6 three incidents in Jesus' ministry. And all of them tell a story of epic missed opportunities. And 
I know there are, there are many important themes in this chapter worth dwelling on, um, but uh, in fact, the, the outline in your bulletin, I think, is my third attempt to try to get my mind around this. Um, but as I, kept, as I read Mark 6 and, and thought and reflected and prayed, I, my, my mind just kept coming back um, to this, this one theme prominent in each episode, the tragedy of rejecting God's willing offer of healing, of salvation, of, of wholeness, um, having God's son in your midst in the first episode um, ready to heal and to save. Or in the second episode, having his emissaries knocking on your door with, with the power to banish the evil that torments you. Uh, or hearing his prophet in the final episode uh, with a warning telling you to turn from a path that will destroy you. And yet responding with, nah, I, I got this. I'm good. How is this possible? How do we get there? But, but what I really, I think, especially want us to see uh, to realize is that these stories are not really about you know, Jesus' friends and family in, in Nazareth or about uh, those villages in Galilee or even about that, that wicked Herod Antipas. They're actually about us. Okay, they're about you and they're about me. I know how you get there because I've been there. And the question I want us to keep asking as we, as we walk through this material is this. How do we thwart God's purposes within us and among us? Let me pray and then I'll read the first episode. Father, give us grace, Lord. Open our eyes, open our hearts. Thank you for your mercy, which is new every morning. In your son's name, amen. All right, uh, Mark chapter 6. If you want a Bible, um, raise your hand. If you don't have one with you, one of the ushers are ready to give you one, and you could take it home with you if you uh, would like. Okay? Uh, Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked, and what is this wisdom that has been given to him that he, that he does miracles? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Aren't, aren't his sisters with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, Only in his hometown, among his relatives and in his own house, is a prophet without honor. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hand on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. Now, in order to understand this story, to hear it properly as Mark intended, we have to recall the incidents of the immediate preceding days, week, uh, 
detailed in chapter 4 and 5. At the end of chapter 4, you'll remember Jesus wakes up in the middle of a raging storm, sort of yawns and stretches and calms the wind and the waves. Okay? Chapter 5, he comes eye to eye <laughs> with a legion of demons and hurls them into the abyss. And just prior to arriving in Nazareth, he faces, he meets death itself with a shrug and says, little girl, arise. What is it that stumps him? What is it that stops him in his tracks and keeps him from doing what he has come to do? Unbelief. Verse 5, he could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few people and sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their unbelief. You know, you read through the Gospels and there's a lot of amazing going on. And usually, uh, it's almost always focused on Jesus. Uh, the crowds are amazed at his teaching. The people are amazed at his miracles. Uh, the disciples are, are, are amazed at his power. The teachers of the law are uh, amazed at his responses. The Pharisees are amazed that he doesn't wash his hands before, before eating. Even when Jesus isn't doing anything, <laughs> Jesus is amazing. At the end of Mark we read, and Pilate was amazed that Jesus did not answer anything concerning the charges against him. On two occasions, however, it is Jesus who is amazed. At one point, he is asked by a Roman centurion, a Gentile, to heal his servant who is close to death. And as, he, as Jesus turns to go, the centurion says, no, no, just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I am a man under authority and I have soldiers under me. And when I say to one, come, he comes. And when I say to another, go, he goes. And Jesus was amazed, Matthew tells us. And he answered, I have not seen faith like this anywhere in Israel. The other instance is in Nazareth. His own hometown, his own friends, the community he grew up in. He was amazed at their lack of faith. And so he was unable to do any miracles among them. Because we thwart God's purpose in our lives by refusing to believe in his son. His mission, his identity, his power, his purpose. I think all of those things are in the mix when we hear the responses from the people in Nazareth. Who is this? Now, um, we're not to suppose 
uh, that the relationship between uh, Jesus and unbelief is, is akin to um, uh, Superman and kryptonite, right? Like, you know, he comes into its presence and he's enfeebled and weak and it just can't heal anybody. No, it's not, it's not like that. But faith, God has determined, is the divine mechanism the divine mechanism which unleashes his power into our lives. Faith is so important. We have one story where Jesus heals somebody without even knowing it because the person had faith. Do you remember last week the story of the woman with the issue of blood? Mark 5. She's Jesus is making his way through a thick crowd and this woman somehow manages to, you know, to push, elbow her way um, toward him, saying to herself, if, if only I can touch the hem of his garments, I'll be healed. <gasps> and Jesus, as Mark tells us, feels the power go out from him and he turns and says who touched me of course the disciples are like um, Jesus there are people pressing around you all every side true but one of them had faith and as she reached out in faith the father reach down in compassion. Some of the most piercing words for me personally in the Gospels come from Luke 18 where Jesus is speaking of uh, those who call out to their heavenly father night and day and he promises they will receive justice and then he adds, but when the son of man comes, Will he find faith on the earth? In in that parable, faith is demonstrated by persistence in calling to the Father, knowing, approaching the Father in faith, knowing that he can do whatever we ask and knowing that he can do, he wants to do much more than we ask. Well, there were a few in Nazareth who reached out to Jesus in faith. These went home with healed bodies and thankful hearts. The others missed an opportunity of a lifetime, right? But um, sometimes Jesus comes to us in a way that we might not expect. Let me read the next episode. I'm going to begin in the, be- in the middle of verse 6. Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village. This is in Galilee. Calling the 12 to him, he sent them out two by two and gave them authority over evil sp- spirits. These were his instructions. 
Take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals but not an extra shirt. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome to you or listen to you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave as a testimony against them. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many people with, with oil and healed them. Okay, so Jesus has been preparing his disciples for this task for months. They've seen him heal and perform, you know, staggering miracles. Uh, they've seen him exercise a legion of de- demons. They've, they've heard him teach. Um, they've watched him experience rejection twice. First in Decapolis and then again in Nazareth. They're ready. And he is commissioning them, empowering them, and, and dispatching them as his emissaries to carry out his mission. He is um, multiplying himself uh, and, and sending them out. Particularly, the text emphasizes, with power over evil spirits. Now, the restrictions he places on them, you know, no bread, no bag, no money, one shirt, uh, are probably intended to force them to rely only on God's provision because nothing Nothing will make you turn to God more quickly, more intently than empty pockets, right? But they also had the effect of rendering them uh, far from auspicious as they entered a village. I mean, they were commissioned emissaries of the king of kings with power to heal, expel demons, and preach repentance, but they probably looked more like uh, homeless indigents. Okay, and Jesus warns them, some will not receive you or listen to you. Be prepared. You see, we can thwart God's purpose in our lives, not only by failing to believe in his son and what he can do, but by failing to recognize, welcome, receive uh, his emissaries, those people who've been sent into our life to restore, to heal, to rebuke, to warn. Now, we heard earlier about Michael and Samantha Owen, right? Uh, Grace missionaries who this week received the um, Clyde C. Cook Mission Award from Biola University. That's a pretty big deal, okay? I remember Michael Owen when he first came into my class years ago, a Greek class, long hair, flip-flops, heavy metal T-shirt. Did I say to myself, ah, here sits a future recipient of the Clyde C. Cook Mission Award from Biola University. 
No, I did not. <laughs> I thought to myself, true confession, this kid is not going to survive my Greek class. In fact, he killed my Greek class. I couldn't devise an exam he couldn't ace. And he didn't even take notes. It was truly annoying. <laughs> Little did I know that first day in Greek that soon enough I'd be mentoring this, this kid. Soon enough we'd be working together in children's ministry. Soon enough, he would meet a spectacular woman. That's one thing Mike and I have in common. We married very well. And he and his wife would be working with Heidi and I, co-leading a grace group. Little did I know that I would be sending my son to Guam with him. The Owens have been an amazing blessing to so many people. Joe and Heather, am I right? Yeah. Okay. As ministers of the gospel, I think this passage is telling us we can't expect rejection, right? But I think it's also warning us to welcome, listen to those people Christ has sent us as his emissaries for our good. And this isn't always easy, especially when there is a, an admonition, a prophetic kind of challenge involved. Now, here's some guidelines that might help you discern. Just guidelines are not foolproof. First, okay, is, is the message in conformity to Scripture, okay, uh, gospel values, perspectives, principles. Second, does the character of the messenger, does it conform to Christ? I mean, are they trustworthy? Okay. Or do you sense they might be in it for themselves in, in some way? You know, in my life, I have, I have known three instances when I was younger where young men uh, told me um, that they had a word from the Lord that they were supposed to marry a certain young woman. Different women, different guys. Um, now, the Lord uh, didn't tell the young woman of her impending nuptials, okay? And in each instance, it just so happened that the woman was very beautiful, okay? In my experience, I've never had a guy get a word from the Lord that he was supposed to marry a, a young woman who was you know, plain or homely or something like that. So, be careful. <laughs> uh, if you sense they're in it for themselves in some way, get advice all right, from someone you trust. Uh, third, maybe most importantly, is your conscience pricked? Does it, does it touch a chord within you, did you, do you say to yourself, ouch? Because our conscience is like that, you know, that, that warning light on your dashboard. Something's wrong, take care of it. I mean, don't, you don't want to ignore it, okay? You don't want to take some duct tape and, and cover it up. You know, it's only going to get worse. It could cost a lot more. In fact, it could cost you your life, right? 
But those that did welcome Jesus, listened, welcome Jesus' follower, listened to them, uh, as verse 12 tells us, um, not only saw demons expelled and, and maladies cured, more importantly, they heard the good news, repentance. You have inner and outer healing, body and soul, restored, renewed. But um, not every story in the gospel has that you know, silver lining. Some are just dark. And the last episode you know, doesn't have a happy ending for us to tuck in our pockets and take home. Um, it's brutal and it's grim. Let me read it. Beginning in verse uh, 14. King Herod heard about this for Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying John the Baptist has been raised from the dead and that's why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said he's Elijah. Still others claimed he's a prophet like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, the man I beheaded has been raised from the dead. And now we have a flashback. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested and he had him bound and put in in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge and wanted to kill him. But she was not able to because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, but he liked to listen to him. Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, ask me whatever you want and I'll give it to you. And he promised with an oath, whatever you ask, I'll give you up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, what what should I ask for? She answered, the head of John the Baptist. At once the girl hurried into the king with the request, I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed, but because of his oaths and the dinner guest, he didn't want to refuse her. So immediately he sent an executioner with the orders, bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in prison, and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. On hearing of this, John's disciples came and took his body away and laid it in a tomb. Herod Antipas, son of Herod the great. He inherited 
a portion of his father's kingdom, all of his father's ambition, and none of his father's wits. He divorced his first wife, the daughter of a powerful Nabataean king, uh, when he fell in love with the beautiful Herodias, wife of his half-brother. Herodias, sensing her fortunes would increase with Antipas, dumps Philip, moves to Galilee, and marries Antipas. Enter John the Baptist. Among those born of women, says Jesus, there's no one greater than John. So the stage is set for a conflict because John was a prophet and he certainly is not going to turn a blind eye um, to vice, corruption, immorality, be it in the priesthood in Jerusalem or the palace in Tiberias. And he calls them out, publicly condemning them. Herodias was incensed. She wants him dead. Antipas seems to be sort of caught in the middle, right? Um, he has some measure of respect for John, which is interesting. And he knows he's right. Did you catch verse 20? Herod protected John, knowing he was a righteous and holy man. Yet, he's unable to rein in his wife. So he has John arrested, which seems to solve both problems. It silences John's public condemnation, his public criticism, while protecting John from Herodias. But he underestimates her cunning and treachery. Guys, single guys, let me talk to you for a moment. Anybody know what my favorite proverb is? Show of hands? No. Uh, here it is. If my sons were here, they'd tell you because I drilled this, this into them. Proverbs 22, 11. Like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman with no discretion. But I've known guys who were willing to marry a pig because all they could see was the gold ring. Inevitably, one day, they wake up, roll over, <gasps> and they say to themselves, I've married a pig. I mean, the gold ring may still be there. It may not, but the pig is not going away. You know, hairy, smelly, snorting. <laughs> Guys, it's fine to marry for beauty as long as you know what beauty is. All right, gals, it's your turn now. What, what price can you put on character? You know, on that determination to do what is right, what is just, even if it hurts. 
What's more important, a man who is ambitiously climbing that ladder or a man who's just humble, loyal? Now, don't get me wrong. Healthy aspiration drive is a good thing, and I'm concerned about it when I don't see it in a young man. But listen to these wise words from a very wise woman. It is better to be single and wish you were married than to be married and wish you were single. Herod and Herodias. They deserve each other, really. John, you remember, grew up in a priestly family. He grew up reading the law and the prophets, and one thing he learned well, sin breaks the heart of God and spells calamity for the nation, especially when it's perpetrated by its kings and leaders. In essence, John is trying to keep Herod from heading off a cliff. And when we apply those three criteria we talked about earlier to this situation, what do we find? Content of the message, check. Character of the messenger, check. Conscience pricked, check. But Herod refuses to listen. He knew that John was righteous, holy, and this was a just word, but he ignored him. He said, nah, I'm good. I got this. A third way we can thwart God's good purposes in our life is by failing to obey his prophetic witness, be it through scripture or to those people he sent to deliver it. So, what happened to Herod and Herodias? They went off that cliff. Do you remember that Nabataean king, the father of Herod's first wife, whom he dishonored and divorced? Well, he wanted vengeance. He soon marched against Antipas and crushed him in a humiliating defeat. Josephus, who is a first century Jewish historian, tells us that the popular opinion of the day was that that judgment, that colossal defeat, was God's judgment on Herod for beheading John the Baptist. But wait, there's more. Because Herodias is not yet done with her scheming. A few years later, uh, when her brother Agrippa receives the title of king uh, from the emperor over neighboring Judea, she presses, goads, nags Antipas into sailing to Rome to petition the emperor for the same title. His official title was Tetrarch, not king. Antipas uh, reluctantly gives in, makes the trip. Okay, it's worth contrasting at this point Herod Antipas with his father, Herod the Great. Um, Herod 
the great would have never been bullied by one of his wives into such a foolhardy endeavor, okay? He would have executed her, divorced her, or banished her. He had 10 wives, and that tended to be their fate, okay? He was a real despot, but he wasn't going to be bullied or conned or manipulated. Herod the Great also had a a very fateful encounter with the Roman emperor under much more dire circumstances. You see, Herod the Great had backed the wrong horse in the Civil War, Mark Antony. When Octavian emerged triumphant, Herod had a tough decision to make. He could pack his bags and get out of Dodge, maybe maybe head to Parthia outside of Rome's reach, or he could sail to Octavian's command center on the island of Rhodes and take his chances with Octavian, who might well just execute him on the spot. He decides to sail to Rhodes, but he leaves his diadem and his regalia behind him and approaches Augustus dressed as a commoner. He openly admits his misguided support of Mark Antony, but tells Augustus this, do not consider to whom I have been a friend, but consider how loyal I am to my friends. Octavian was impressed. Herod returned to Jerusalem with Rome as an ally. Antipas, okay, with all his father's ambition, none of his father's wits, sails to Rome on this fool's errand to meet Caligula. Okay, Caligula was a madman. He was crazy. He was barking. Um, and as a reward, what he received is exile, banishment, stripped of territory, title, property. Thank you, Herodias. Antipas, of course, was, was just as guilty, right? Um, he beheads the very man who was holding up the sign saying, Cliff ahead. Herod and Herodias die in exile, never heard from again, in remote Gaul. But at least they had each other, right? Which is exactly what they deserved. Now, None of us want to end up in exile in Gaul. Uh, But uh, more importantly, none of us want to thwart God's purpose in our life, do we? His intention to heal and to renew, be it through a necessary rebuke or his willing offer of blessing. But we've seen that all throughout this chapter, haven't we? And I think if we're honest we can probably see that proclivity in our own hearts, right? 
times where we like the folks in Nazareth just didn't believe Jesus can really do what he comes to do. Or times uh, like those villages in Nazareth, perhaps, where we, we just refuse to receive God's emissaries into our life to speak truth to us. Maybe times um, where we felt like we could identify with Herod Antipas, you know, refusing to obey God's prophetic rebuke. I know I can say, I see that in my heart. This passage warns us and encourages us. Remember what God has come to do in our lives. Listen. Believe who Jesus is and what he can do. Be watchful of those people he's sending to our lives and listen to his prophetic rebuke. Let me pray. Father, give us that grace to hear, to see, to obey. Thank you for your mercy when we don't. In your son's name, amen.